following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. In college, probably my favorite TV show was 24. I don't know if you watched it or if you were excited about it or loved it or hated it or excited that it's coming back. But 24, regardless of whether I had exams coming up or a paper to write or anything to do, 24 was the top of my TV watching priority list. It had all the right elements, right? I mean, it's exciting. It's the ticking clock. It's the world is going to end either by World War III or nuclear holocaust or something is going to go wrong. So there's this ticking clock, this constant threat. It's got Jack Bauer, who means business. I mean, he's got the right initials, right? Jack Bauer, Jason Bourne, James Bond, Jim Bailey. These men mean business. But the problem was there's a week between each episode. The premise of the show is that we're going to show an entire day's worth, but we're going to take six months to show you this one day. It's a 24-hour show. Each episode tells the story of one hour. So week to week, when you pick up on week two, you're literally one second after the end of week one. That's a lot of time to forget what happened. So what they do each week is they do a little recap right before the episode. Here's what you need to remember. Here are the significant things that happened last week that will help you to make sense of what we're going to watch today. That's what this morning is. This whole sermon is that recap blurb at the beginning of an episode of 24 or Downton Abbey or whatever your show of choice is that you need to recap and remember who are these people? What are they fighting about? Why is Jack Bauer yelling all the time? Why does Edith look so upset all the time? That's what this morning is because we're diving back into Romans. But we've been away for a while. We've been away for two months. And we need to be reminded of the high points of Paul's argument, of Paul's teaching to the church at Rome, if we're going to make sense of what's coming in following months. So to briefly reintroduce the book, when did Paul write it? He wrote it in the late 50s to a church that he hasn't been to yet. He's writing probably from Corinth to the church in Rome, introducing himself. He hasn't met them, but he wants to. He wants to go there as a missionary, as a preacher, to share with them the gospel, to encourage them in their faith. He will eventually get to Rome, but not as a missionary, as a prisoner. But he hasn't gotten there yet. He's writing to a church that's a mix of Jewish and Gentile believers, of people who have the heritage of Abraham and people who are totally new to this faith. And this is his key message. Romans chapter 1. Verses 16 and 17. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, specifically for the book of Romans. It's clarity, it's precision, it's helpfulness to us in knowing who we are, what we need, and what you've done for us. So Father, this morning as we look at Romans chapters 1 through 7, I pray that you would help us to see our need and to see your provision. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, 
For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul will spend the rest of the book of Romans explaining this statement. What does it mean that the righteous shall live by faith? What does he mean to the Jew first and also to the Greek? What does he mean the righteousness of God, the power of God? This, make the, this makes the book of Romans unique for Paul. Everywhere else we have a letter from Paul, he's writing to an individual, to Timothy or to Titus or to Philemon, or he's writing to a church that he knows well or, or even that he helped start, like Ephesians or Philippians. He might be writing to a church that has really significant problems that he's trying to address, like the letters to the Corinthian church. But here, he hasn't met the church. He doesn't know them, and so he takes the opportunity to explain thoroughly, logically, progressively, the content of his gospel, why he's not ashamed of it, what it is, and where the power is. And the very first thing that he does in explaining this gospel is explains man's need. This is our first point this morning. Mankind is in great need. Paul gives this majestic statement about the power of God for salvation, and he says it's good news that the righteousness of God is being revealed. Why? Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. It's good news, it's gospel that the righteousness of God is being revealed, for the wrath of God is also being revealed, but against what? Against whom? That's what he launches into next. The rest of chapter 1, 1, 18 through 32, explains that this righteousness of God, this wrath of God, is revealed against heathens, against pagans, against Gentiles and Greeks. In other words, anyone who's not a Jew. And Paul explains their unrighteousness in terms of a rejection of general revelation. General revelation is that knowledge about God that we can have simply from the fact that we're made in his image and live in his world. It's Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. It's Romans 1, 19 through 20. What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely or especially His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Even though non-Jews, even though heathens, even though pagans have this general revelation about God, they know he exists and that he's powerful and that he's divine, they reject it. And so God gives them up. Three times in Romans 1, God gives them up. God gave them over to pursue their own passions. And Paul traces a deeper and deeper descent into sin. Unbelievers, Gentiles, pagans, heathens are in desperate need of the gospel. And you can imagine the, the church, especially the Jews in the church, saying it's like, preach, right? This, we agree this is what we've been saying all along. But then in chapter 2, Paul turns the tables. He says, Jews, you need this gospel as well. Good people, you need the gospel. He explains their unrighteousness in terms of a rejection of special revelation. Where general revelation is that knowledge of God we have from the fact that we live in his world, that we're made in his image, special revelation is that knowledge of God that we get from his word, from his law. Creation tells us that God exists, that he's powerful, that he's mighty, that he's creative. Scripture tells us that he's holy, that he's merciful, 
that he's good, that he's loving. The Jews had this, and they rejected it. Listen to Romans 2, 17 through 23. If you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law, rely on the special revelation and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you're instructed from the law, you who teach others, don't you teach yourself? No, you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. Paul says you've done really well at judging others. You've done really well at saying you love the law, but it's not in your heart. Your obedience is merely in word, merely external. It hasn't gone deep. In reality, Paul concludes, all mankind is subject to the wrath of God. Romans 3.10, none is righteous. No, not one. Universal guilt. Universal condemnation is what Paul describes here. It's bleak, isn't it? Sobering and hard to consider, but it's true. Paul says, you who are licentious, who flaunt the law of God and couldn't care less about it, condemned. You who judge others, condemned. You who have it together and look pretty good on the outside, condemned. Children of Abraham, condemned. Everyone, condemned. This is the great prerequisite for the gospel because if we don't believe this we will never turn to Christ if we don't see our helplessness and our our desperate state we won't turn to the solution that God provides and we say yes and amen but I wonder do we really believe this do we really believe that the situation is as dire as desperate as Paul describes I suspect many of us, myself included, have real difficulty believing that things are as bad as Paul says they are. We have trouble believing that other people are as wicked as the Bible says that they are. We have difficulty believing this about adults. The the reigning philosophy of our day, secular humanism, says that mankind is basically good and all we need is more time and more opportunity and things inexorably will improve. Life will get better. Lifespans will get longer. Cars will be able to drive themselves. We'll figure out teleportation. Things are going to improve because man is basically good and so given enough time, we can solve the problems of the world. We know that that's false, but that view infects the church. We say things like, I know they're not Christians, but they're, so, they're such nice people. We are not saved by being nice. We'll say, they're not, they're not Christians, but, but they're moral. They're welcoming, they're hospitable, that doesn't make us good. We don't think this way about adults, but we also don't think this way about children. And I I say this as a parent who absolutely loves his daughter. How do we describe children in the church? Little angels, precious little beams of sunshine that God sends down into our world to brighten our day. How does the Bible talk about children? A blessing from the Lord, to be sure, but also conceived in sin and wicked from birth. If we don't think this way about others, we certainly don't think this way about ourselves. In the early 1900s, a leading British newspaper sent an inquiry to several authors with a simple question. What is wrong with the world? What would you say? Think about it. What would you say? Hunger? Lack of education? 
unsafety, restlessness in the world, current political climate, disrespect of authority, culture of distraction and entertainment and triviality. A man named G.K. Chesterton, a Christian, had the briefest reply. The question, what is wrong with the world? G.K. Chesterton wrote, dear sirs, I am. Sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. That's a man that understands his desperate need. Can we look out at the world, at the way it is, at all the problems that it has, and honestly, with any shred of integrity, say, the biggest problem that I see is right here. Until we can, I don't know that the truth of our desperate need is settled deep within our hearts. What would change? What would change about us if this truth were settled deep within our hearts? A lot would change, but I want to focus on two, one internal and one external. First, internal. Our love for Christ would grow and grow and grow. Luke gives us an account of Jesus eating a meal at a Pharisee's house. This is Luke 7, 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. He went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, it's a euphemism, she was a lady of the evening. When she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man was a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she's a sinner. Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. When a loved one tells you, starts a conversation with, I have something to say to you, it's not a good thing, right? You know it's not going to be pleasant. Dad, I have something I need to tell you. Or sweetheart, I, we need to talk about something. Either they're going to confess sin or you're gonna, they're going to point out your sin. Either way, it's not going to be pleasant. Jesus says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, about two years' wages, and the other 50, maybe two months. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. He said to him, you've judged rightly. Turning towards the woman, he said to Simon. So Jesus is looking at this woman and speaking to Simon. Do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. He said to her, your sins are forgiven. Who do you identify with in that story? Honestly, who do you identify with? The woman desperate to fall at Jesus' feet, helpless against your own sin? Or Simon, sitting beside the table at Jesus, probably thinking I'm doing Jesus a favor by having him in my home and serving him dinner. 
Jesus is really lucky to have him on my, have me on his team, to to have my endorsement. Who do you recognize? Where do you recognize yourself in this story? The depth of our love for God is intimately connected with our knowledge of our great need. He who has forgiven little loves little. He who has forgiven much loves much. The reality is that we've all been forgiven much, but if we don't realize that, our love is little. Do you find yourself cold towards Christ? Do you find yourself unwilling to pour out the flask of ointment, that which is most precious and valuable to you at Jesus' feet? Don't rule out the possibility that you may not have explored the depth of your need for Christ. So internally, if we really believed that we are desperately sick, that we are desperately needy, we would love Christ more. But externally, and this is hugely convicting for me, we would evangelize. Our church has grown a lot in recent years, and that is a good thing. It's a good thing when God's people gather together for worship. But one thing that concerns the leadership is that very little, embarrassingly little of that growth is from people coming to know the true and living God. If this truth were real to us, if if mankind's desperate need were real and settled deep within our hearts, this would not be an issue at all. I know the excuses well because I hear them, I hear myself saying them in my own head. I can talk to them about Christ later. They'll be fine. There will be other chances. I I don't want to lose the friendship. What if they ask a question that I don't know the answer to and I look foolish? What if it's a family member and I offend them and every Thanksgiving from now until one of us dies is painfully awkward? I know the objections. But if we realized and had settled deep within our hearts our desperate need, they wouldn't make a ripple in our desire to see our friends and family, our co-workers and neighbors rescued from death. Because brothers and sisters, that's what awaits them. That's what awaited us outside of Christ. No one is righteous. No, not one. I don't think about my non-believing friends and neighbors that way. I almost said co-workers, but I work here, so that would be really awkward. (laughs) I don't think about people in my life who don't know Christ that way. We must, brothers and sisters, for it's the truth. Paul's description of our condition sounds very bleak, and it is, but it's not the end of the story. God has provided a way out, and that's our second point this morning, God's provision. So we've got Romans 1 through 3, where Paul says, non-believers, guilty, Jews, guilty, everybody, guilty. He doesn't say it with quite that positive attitude, but he hits us over the head with it over and over again, guilty, guilty. Guilty. And then we get to Romans 3.21. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. It's a huge relief. We should exhale when we get to that verse. But now, the righteousness of God apart from from the law. God has made a way out. He has given us a great provision. What is this provision? The righteousness of God 
through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. No longer are we under the wrath of God. He gives us his righteousness. No longer do we have to work and work and work attempting to earn our salvation. It is given to us by faith. No longer do we have to wonder who will save us. Jesus Christ is the only Savior of sinners. And all of this for all who believe. For doubting Thomas. For fearful Peter. For the thief on the cross and the woman caught in adultery. For persecuting Saul. For dying Stephen. For you and for me. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Then you have this righteousness. Your need has been met and God calls you his own. You are justified. This is so radical. This is so unexpected. This is such good news that Paul has to spend the next four chapters, a fourth of the book, defending this statement. In chapter 4, he explains what he means when he says that it's by faith. He goes straight to Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, the friend of God. Because if he can show that Abraham was justified by faith, then he can show that any of us are justified by faith as well. And Paul does just that. In chapter 4, verses 1 through 8, Paul shows that Abraham's justification was not based on his works. Verses 9 through 12, it wasn't based on his circumcision or Jewish identity rites. In 13 through 15, it wasn't based on his obedience to the law. No, in 16 through 25, he shows that Abraham was justified by faith. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Paul says, in effect, it's always worked this way. God does not save his people differently in the Old Testament than he did now. It's always been by faith. Chapter 5 then explains the Jesus Christ part of faith in Jesus Christ. The first half, 5, 1 through 11, explains just what Christ did. Romans 5, 7 and 8. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul says, Christ was not a good example for us to follow. He was not an inspiration for us to live a better life. He was a sacrifice for sin, turning aside the wrath of God and atoning for our sins. The second half of the chapter, 5, 12 through 21, explains why we get any benefit from that at all. Paul compares Christ to Adam. He says both of these men represent two different humanities. Adam represented all mankind, and in his fall... We fell. Romans 5.12, sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin. So death spread to all men because all sinned. That's the humanity Paul describes in Romans 1 through 3. But Christ represents a new humanity. And when we're saved, when we're justified, when, we're, when we are redeemed, we're taken out of Adam's humanity and put in to Christ. Romans 5.18, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. So our salvation is not through some aimless just believe, some sentimental just, just be sincere. Our faith, chapter 4, must have an object, Jesus Christ. 
chapter 5. Having explained what he means, Paul then rolls up his sleeves and starts to deal with some potential objections. Again, it's radical, it's unexpected, it's new for people, and so people bristle at it. So Paul, anticipating objections, deals with them in chapter 6 and 7. The first objection is this. Paul, if this is true, people are going to go off the reservation. If you're saying that we are justified not at all by our works, then people are just going to do whatever they want, whenever they want. Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? And Paul says, of course not. In the first half of the chapter, verses 1 through 14, he says, don't you remember what happened in your baptism? In verses 15 through 23, don't don't you know what happened at your conversion? Paul says, our old selves were crucified with Christ. We have died to sin. We're no longer slaves of sin. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Paul reminds them, and he reminds us, now that we've been saved, now that you have been set free from sin and become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For Paul, it's inconceivable that someone who died to sin would live in it. The second objection, chapter 7, deals with the law of God. If we're saved apart from the law, why give it in the first place? If the law only increases our guilt, why why bother giving it? Paul upholds the goodness of the law, 7.12. The law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. He says just because works can't save us, just because obedience to the law is impossible for us, doesn't mean that there's something wrong with it. Instead, the law is supposed to wake us up to our need of something greater than the law to save us. 7.13, did that which is good bring death to me? By no means, of course not, are you kidding me? It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Sin's abuse of the law only exposes its ugliness and our desperate need. The law is not the problem. Our hearts are. And the rest of chapter 7 deals with the struggle between the law of God and our hearts. I do not understand my own actions, Paul says. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Or as DC Talk put it, what's going on inside of me? I despise my own behavior. And at the end of Romans 7, after this this struggle, he he turns it over and looks at it and cries out in despair, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And the wonderful relief of God's provision. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is God's provision for us. The righteousness of God given to us by faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. We say yes and amen, or we would if we were Baptist. But I wonder, do we really believe this? I have to ask this question, if this truth is settled deep within our hearts, because we say things like, what an amazing testament. I mean, imagine if we're going to put on a conference for a bunch of youth, or a bunch of adults, or a bunch of anybody, and we're going to gather them together and share the gospel and hope to get some commitments of faith, what do we have to have? We have to have somebody with an amazing testimony, right? Somebody who like, was into drugs and alcohol, was addicted to prescription medication, 
Preferably someone who ended up in jail at the end of their rope. But God saved them and now they're a pastor. Or better yet, a missionary. But not like to one of those easy countries like England. No, they need to be like a missionary in China or Iran or something like that. Then people will say, wow, what an amazing God. God really did something special in their life. What's underneath that? God did something great for them. He didn't have to work so hard for me. He didn't have have to reach down that far to pull me out of death. Brothers and sisters, you have an amazing testimony. Because what happened? God brought a dead person to life. God captured an enemy soldier and didn't throw him in prison, didn't condemn him to death, didn't commit him to a life of servitude. He made him a son. He sat you at the table. And all of this, not because of anything you did, only through faith. Until we can learn to see that our own conversion is just as miraculous, just as unexpected as the Apostle Paul's, I don't think we understand that we've been saved by grace alone. What would change if this truth were settled deep within our hearts? First of all, we'd be profoundly humble. Whenever Paul talks clearly about salvation by grace, humility follows immediately. In Romans 3, 27, remember we just heard 3, 21, but now the righteousness of God. Romans 3, 27, what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, you know it well. By grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The early church had a problem with boasting, especially the Jewish believers, because they had the scriptures, they had the testimony, they had the patriarchs. They said things like, well, I'm from the right family. I can trace my lineage all the way back to the original tribes of Israel. They said things like, I observe all the festivals. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm doing all the right things. The early church struggled with boasting, and things are no different today especially those of us who have been believers all our lives or come from families of believers. We don't trace our lineage back to Dan or not Flea or not Thally or however you say it, but we say, my great uncle was a deacon at this historic church. My grandpa's an elder at, at, at that historic church. My family are all believers. We don't cite our circumcision as proof of our faith, but we do cite our church attendance or I was baptized in the right way. I was baptized as an infant, or I was immersed, or I got baptized in whatever you think is the right way, you cite that as proof of your faith. But salvation by grace alone forbids boasting. You are not justified by your last name, but in spite of it. You're not justified by what church you attended in the past or by how long you've been a member of this church. You're not justified by who you know, by your connections in Christendom. You're not justified by your works. You are saved by grace through faith in the finished work of Christ. We sang it earlier. I will not boast in anything. No gifts, no power, no wisdom, no works, no pedigree. I will boast in Jesus Christ. The first thing that this would change for us if we really deeply believed it is we would be profoundly humble. Second, we, we wouldn't be so worried about the strength of our faith. 
We've all been there, right? Do, do I believe deeply enough? Am I sincere enough? Do I really trust God enough? The fluctuations of our faith fill us with great fear. It doesn't have to be this way. Some of you this week may have seen a video of Don Carson preaching, and he gives a great illustration of this, and because I couldn't come up with anything better, I'm going to borrow his. He says, imagine two Jewish fathers on the night of the first Passover, all the way back in Exodus 12, in Egypt, still under Pharaoh's thumb. They've heard God's commands through Moses, they've sacrificed the lambs, they've roasted the meat, they've eaten, they've put the blood on the doorposts, and as the sun's going down, they're having a conversation. The first one says, I am terrified. I have one son, and I can't bear the thought of him being taken away from me. The other father says, what are you worried about? I mean, you've done everything, right? You you killed the lamb, you you cooked the meat, you ate it, you put the blood on the doorposts. The father says, "Of, of course, God told us to do those things. I'm still terrified. The second father says, me, not at all. I can't wait for this night to be over, and we can leave Egypt. I have three sons. I'm not worried about losing any of them. I trust our God absolutely. That night, as the angel of death comes down, which son is taken? Neither of them. The angel of death does not pass over their houses because of the strength of their father's faith. The only reason the angel of death passes over is the blood of the sacrificial lamb. Brothers and sisters, the strength of your faith has zero bearing on your assurance of salvation. Your salvation is assured because of the blood of the sacrificial lamb. This is all my hope and peace. This is all my righteousness. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Should we pray for stronger faith? Absolutely. The Christian life more enjoyable with stronger faith? Yes, but it is not more sure. We have these two great truths before us in Romans 1 through 7. Man's great need and God's great provision. And that brings us to Romans 8. In the most beloved book of the Bible, Romans 8 is probably the most beloved chapter of the Bible. It describes a spirit-filled life that we should all hope for and strive for. And this is why it's so crucial that we settle the truths of Romans 1 through 7 deep within our hearts. We do not get the kind of life described in Romans 8 unless we see the truth of Romans 1 through 7. Unless we see our desperate need, as, Roman, as Paul describes in Romans 1 through 3, we won't turn to Christ. Unless we see God's great provision in Romans 3 through 7, we'll keep trying to live the Christian life on our own strength. Without the truths of Romans 1 through 7, we will not have the humility and the great love for Christ that are absolutely necessary to live a spirit-dependent life. So this week, as you go out, do whatever it takes this afternoon, over lunch, to settle these truths deep into your heart. Here are a couple suggestions. When it comes to our great need, how do we settle the fact that we are a needy people deep within our heart? First, pray. Pray that God would show you areas of your life where you ignore his law, where you try and live outside of reference to him, or where you think you've got it together and so aren't depending on him. Ask God to give you an honest self-assessment. 
Memorize the fruit of the Spirit. And as you do that, evaluate yourself. Do I see these fruit in my life? And if I do, are they growing or are they stagnant and rotten on the tree? If you're really brave, ask your spouse to evaluate the fruit of the Spirit in your life. Take the test of the tongue this week. Don't lie or gossip or complain or boast or defend yourself at all. Instead, continually affirm others. If you make it till tomorrow morning, call me. I have some questions for you. I need help in this area. The point of this is not to tear us down, but to make us really see how desperately we need Christ. Because again, as we see our desperate need, our love for him grows. When it comes to God's provision, how do we settle that deep within our hearts? Again, pray. Pray that God would help you to see Christ and to trust him. Sing, commit to memory the great hymns of the faith. Nothing but the blood. There is a fountain filled with blood. And can it be a mighty fortress, O love that will not let me go. Commit those to memory. Chew on those lyrics throughout the week. Read in the Gospels the accounts of Jesus' death and resurrection, the agony and pain and victory. Read some other book about who Christ is, about what he has done. We have several like that in our resource center. I'll mention my favorite, The Cross of Christ by John Stott. I read it in college, and literally it changed my life. I would not be a pastor today were it not for that book. Maybe that's not a recommendation. Maybe that's a clue for you to stay away from it. But that book made me love Jesus Christ more because he explained so clearly what he did for me. Doing these things, getting these truths settled in our hearts do not make us more deserving of God's grace. They make us more reliant on it. We need to see our need. We need to see Christ. Paul says there is none righteous, no, not one, But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. For the clarity of the book of Romans that shows us so clearly, so unquestionably, the depth of our need and the greatness of your provision. Father, as we go out this week, I pray that you would settle deep within our hearts these two truths. Help us to rely on you more. Help us to look to you for assurance of salvation, not to our own feeble and fluctuating faith. Father, help us to trust you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.